Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. If you've got biblical questions on your heart and your mind, we'd like to think you've come to the right place. Uh, Submit your questions, and we will do our best to search the Scriptures and uh, allow you to know what the Bible has to say. Uh, about what's going on in your life personally, uh, about how to answer tough questions you might have been asked uh, regarding your faith in Christ. Uh, Maybe you'd like a take on the events of today or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. We are all over it. If a question matters to you, it matters to us here on A Reason for Hope. As always, uh, just one standard for a question. Make sure it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to uh, explore the Word of God with you as your questions lead. That's what we try to do each and every day. We don't try uh, to uh, come up with what we think uh, we should talk about on the broadcast, but rather uh, focus in on what your questions are. So jump right on in. Uh, Sean, if people want to get their questions to us, how can they do that? Well, if you're joining us online, you can do so at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. You click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen. It's on that purple bar where it lists all the other ministries and messengers and whatever are them. Minions. Yeah, the uh, Ministroni. No, Watch no, that's live. an M word too. Yeah. Watch live would be the one you want to click on, and you'll be sent to a screen where we are either counting down to or presently broadcasting the next program from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or Pacific if you're in the U.S. post daylight savings time. If you want to send us your questions, again, on the right hand side of the screen, you'll be able to send those questions to us, and we'll be keeping an eye on that page as well during the broadcast. But if you'd like social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone, but noting that we don't control when or why we are taken off of those platforms. We want you to be prepared and be familiar with our website. Say you're listening to us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates. You can still send us your questions at questionsforhope through email at gmail.com. Note if you want to take advantage of that as well, joining us live if we don't get to your question, but we still want to have the time to keep it organized and properly formatted in the form of a question, feel free to email it to us and we'll be getting to it during the next program. We're looking forward to engaging with you. Just note the standards and uh, we'll also be beginning not necessarily with a prophecy update, but some interesting topics to give you time to answer or rather ask your questions. But we also want to take the time to ask the one who we hope will answer the questions to do so. Dan, want to start us off in a word of prayer? I'd love to. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to focus in on your word. Lord, thank you uh, for the blessing it is in our life, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, grant us the grace, uh, as Sean and I share, not to share our own takes, 
But simply what your word has to say about uh, whatever questions are in the hearts and minds of the people you bring to this broadcast. We pray your word would go forth with clarity, with conviction, without compromise, Lord, but speaking the truth in love, we'd build up one another. And Lord, I pray uh, for those who might be on the outside looking in at what a real relationship with you is all about, who are joining us on the broadcast, that you would bring them to a place of understanding how much you love them, how you sent your son to die in their place in a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for their sins and that by putting their faith and their trust in you uh, they can receive your gift of a real relationship with you and eternal life and forgiveness of sins wow what an incredible opportunity i pray that many would hear your word and come to that saving relationship with you we don't know how much time we've got left before your son returns lord so help us to make the most of this time we commit it into your hands in jesus name amen amen now um if I seem to look gaunt or sound distant, uh, we did a two-hour and 45-minute live stream. A marathon. Just, <laughs> just before this broadcast. So uh, if I seem distant, it's not because I'm avoiding questions. It's because I'm very tired. But uh, <laughs> regarding the... Well, that's okay. I'm I'm feeling fit as a fiddle. So. Yes. And uh, with that energy to provide, uh, what will we be talking about today while we wait for the questions to come in? Well, one of the big headlines uh, that uh, really grabbed a lot of attention and does touch on some scriptural issues uh, is one that ran on the uh, foxnews.com website. The headline being, San Francisco Archbishop bars Nancy Pelosi from receiving Holy Communion due to abortion support. Uh, Pelosi has said she is a devout Catholic despite her abortion advocacy. Well, where things sort of hit the fan uh, was the... uh, recently uh, proposed uh, law that went through the Senate uh, that would have allowed uh, abortion all the way up to the ninth month. Uh, it is probably the the most radical uh, piece of legislation ever proposed. It failed to pass the Senate uh, on one vote. Joe Manchin of West Virginia refused to go along with his fellow Democrats which would have allowed this particular piece of legislation to go to the House of Representatives. Uh, the the extremity of uh, this uh, particular piece of legislation obviously uh, ruffled some feathers, so much so that San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordi- Cordellioni, not Corleone, but Cordellioni, uh, announced Friday that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is barred from receiving Holy Communion due to her pro-abortion stance. Uh, marking an escalation in a decades-long tension between the Roman Catholic Church and liberal Democratic politicians on abortion. Cordiglione has written to the California Democrat informing her that she should not present herself for Holy Communion at Mass and that priests will not distribute communion to her if she does present herself. Uh, Cordiglione wrote a letter directly to Nancy Pelosi, the contents of which have been shared. It says a Catholic legislator who supports procured abortion after knowing the teaching of the church commits a manifestly grave sin, which is a cause of most serious scandal to others. Therefore, universal church law provides that such persons are not admitted to Holy Communion. Uh, You might recall that uh, President Joe Biden uh, ran into some controversy along this same line when a uh, Roman Catholic bishop refused to allow him to receive communion uh, back east. Now, this isn't just being withdrawn from participation with a uh, wafer and some 
well, I guess wine if they're a Roman Catholic usually, but to a Roman Catholic practicing, not just according to the Bible, but also their catechisms, their dogmas, what would that mean to a practicing Roman Catholic, a devout one, as Joe Biden and Pelosi both claim to be? To be denied communion, even historically going back to the second century, that was telling you you were what? Well, uh, you know, I did quite a bit of research into this because uh, my first uh, uh inclination as a non-Roman Catholic and understanding a bit about Roman Catholicism is that uh, the receiving of the sacraments, the seven sacraments of Roman Catholicism is absolutely essential to someone's hope of salvation somewhere over the rainbow. Continued membership in the church and the first and greatest of those sacraments is the transubstantiation of communion. We'll explain these big words in a moment. To be denied that would essentially be to say your salvation has been voided until that has been amended. Well, no. Uh, As I said, uh, I did uh, quite a bit of research into this. And uh, the the individuals involved who were talking about this, uh, you know, I went to uh, the EWTN website, the Catholic News Network, and did some research into exactly what this means. What is being talked about here is not excommunication. That would be cutting all hope of salvation uh, away from someone unless they completely repented of some grievous sin. Uh, but this is what is called interdiction. And there's a distinction of this uh, as near as I've been able to uh, figure out as far as the book of canon law is uh, is concerned. Uh, Pope John Paul II uh, did a quite a bit of uh, of, uh, clarifying as far as where, say, the issue of abortion comes in. And Pope Francis, uh, to his credit, uh, has seemingly backed up uh, what Pope John Paul II said about all of this. But as far as a Roman Catholic is concerned, this does not uh, constitute, uh, say, the Roman Catholic Church considering Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden uh, non-believers. But it is a very serious shot over the bow if you will, that a continued perseverance in this area is a uh, an area of uh, sin. And to use their own words, formal cooperation in abortion is a grave offense. The church attaches canonical penalty of excommunication of this crime against human life. Uh, but uh, direct abortion, that is to say, will does an end to her means is gravely contrary to moral law, it says, and uh, the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church has uh, says that since the first century, the Church has affirmed the moral evil of every procured abortion. This teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. But here is where uh, it kind of comes in for Nancy Pelosi and for Joe Biden and other uh, individuals. Uh, Mario, uh, or I should say Andrew Cuomo, uh, the governor of New York, also was involved with the controversy over this. A Catholic legislator who supports procured abortion after knowing the teaching of the church commits a manifestly grave sin, which is the cause of most serious scandal to others. Therefore, universal church law provides that such persons are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So uh, as near as I can condense this down after (laughs) spending about an hour trying to read through all these different uh, uh, portions of the book of canon law and the different opinions that people have about all of this, is that the withholding of communion is a major step in church discipline. And the withholding of communion will only happen 
uh, after a, an individual who is, say, for instance, in Nancy Pelosi's shoes or Joe Biden's shoes or, say, Andrew Cuomo's shoes, continues to support this particular practice, in essence, uh, facilitating the practice of abortion, even after being spoken to directly by uh, either their uh, parish priest or, in this case, a uh, Roman Catholic bishop. It would be that serious. And if they continued along this line, communion would be withheld. This is, in a sense, the start of the process of what we would call church discipline. You know, and so uh, when this uh, kind of thing comes up, uh, you know, obviously it stirs people up and they go, oh, my goodness. You know, the idea of, uh, say, saying to uh, someone that they cannot uh, partake of communion in a Roman Catholic sense, that they are not a member of good standing of the church. They say, well, you know, that, that just seems like uh, something that the Roman Catholic Church does. But no, in, in a sense, it's a reflection of another uh, biblical uh, teaching that is very, very controversial in Christian circles, the teaching of church discipline. Okay, what is church discipline all about? Well, maybe the go-to verse on church discipline is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, uh, where Jesus speaks about uh, how we are to deal with a brother or sister that is in an area of sin. Uh, In verse 15, we read this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. By the way, this is the first time Jesus ever uses, or the second time I should say, uh, Jesus uses the word church in, uh, in the book of Matthew, in the scripture itself. He said, assuredly, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if any of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. Now, uh, that particular passage is really important to understand, because if an individual, say, comes to a body of believers, identifies with a body of believers, says, I'm a born-again Christian, and I want to continue participating in uh, a body of believers, continuing in fellowship, continuing in worship, continuing in, say, uh, receiving communion, considering, uh, continuing, uh, say, being involved uh, with uh, anything that the church is involved with, maybe even seeking baptism. Uh, if an individual along this line is involved in an area of sin, well, it's not up to us to look the other way and pretend like it isn't going to happen. Jesus gives us uh, some very important steps. And I think these steps, if followed, can really put out a lot of uh, the fires that have really burned a lot of ministries down through time. First of all, if your brother sins against you, you're aware that a brother has sinned against you personally. You have direct personal involvement with this. Uh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Notice the first principle of church discipline is if you are directly a party to it, if you know exactly what has gone on here, uh, if this person has, in a sense, defrauded or ripped you off uh, in some way, violated some uh, area of Scripture, you go to them personally, and what else? Privately. You don't get 30 people involved. You don't tell 50 people about it and then go to this person. 
the idea is that we would want to have someone deal with us in church discipline. Uh, uh, we would deal with someone else in church discipline just the way we would want it done for us. And, and if I were in a situation where I blew it, I think I would really value the fact that a person who was directly involved with that came to me personally about it, that it wasn't just uh, a topic of uh, gospel gossip, if you will, uh, you know, uh, that, that everybody else seemed to know about what was going on before it was brought to me. And note that point as well. If you're not wanting to just go down the church discipline route and you're seeking counsel and saying, was I really defrauded? Because some people can take things personally that weren't intended that way. Seeking godly counsel can do that. But you maintain the privacy. Why? Not mentioning names until we've progressed further down this conversation. Yeah, and, that, and that's a really wise uh, caveat to attach to it. So the first step is private. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But then Jesus says, but if he will not hear, what if he goes, go, go uh, peddle your papers. Uh, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's important to understand that the, the one or two more that is going to be a part of all of this aren't necessarily people who are direct witnesses of this sin. Uh, they are people to evaluate the interaction that is going on between the two of you, you Preferably know, replace someone in church leadership, yeah. someone who's walked with God. You'd want to emulate. Yeah, exactly. But if he will not hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, if a person is uh, resistant to correcting or repenting, uh, bringing forth fruit and keeping with repentance in an area of open sin, then, uh, you know, once you've gone to privately, then you've established these things by one or two more witnesses. Then after that, the person, the uh, particular infraction is brought to the church itself, and the person is denied fellowship in the church. That's what Jesus means, like, let him be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. You do not just look the other way at a person like this because of the seriousness of what's involved here. Now, this is not to shame someone, not to do a victory dance on their head or point a finger at them and say, oh, what a horrible, awful person. The idea behind that is if a person is denied fellowship within a church, hopefully they are going to want to do whatever is necessary to get back right in fellowship with the church. And, you know, some people say, well, what's the big deal about that? You know, if a person got disciplined like this, I mean, don't they just, you know, drive up the freeway and find another church and and do their thing. Well, no, Jesus said, surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven, where two or three are gathered together in my name. I will be there in the midst. This gives the answer to the, well, you know, why should I listen to you? I don't really care. I'm just going to go to another church and, and set up shop there. You can't outrun God. But Jesus is saying, when you do this, when you follow these steps, I'm going to be with you in all of this. And the uh, the Apostle Paul 
uh, gives us a demonstration, if you will, of this particular process in action right in the book of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is an incident, or 5 rather, uh, not uh, that we want to go into too many details unless you ask, but essentially someone was in blatant sin and the church, instead of disciplining it rightly, was tolerating it to continue, unopposed, unobjected to, even uncorrected. And Paul said, your actions are not good. Right. <laughs> and said that you must cast out that person. You must discipline them so that, um, and, and he even prayed so far as to say, I'm praying for the man to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but for what purpose that his soul may be saved. We see the follow through on this in second Corinthians chapter three, right. where he says, seek to restore such a one. Cause we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. He might use this to put them under greater condemnation that was actually warranted. So the point being made is this, all actions done in Jesus name should be done with Jesus heart. Right. Goal is restoration, not condemnation. Right. The purpose of correction is to accomplish correction, not just put a red mark on their ledger and send them on their way. Right. Right. And and that's and that's the main point. However, there is, as you mentioned there, this idea of delivering someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. There's a spiritual component to all of this. Uh, you know, there's a spiritual war going on. And uh, as we see in the book of Job, Satan uh, can only do uh, his uh, various schemes against us once they go through the hands of God. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting how Satan even mentioned that God had put a hedge about Job uh, over his person and all that he had. And so he couldn't get at him. Well, when a person goes through church discipline, I think this is what Paul is getting to turn over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God removes that protection and allows the wicked one to, in a sense, do a number on that person with the goal of showing this person what they've really lost in the midst of all of this. So there's nothing wrong, per se, with church discipline. In fact, uh, when it comes even to the subject of taking communion, uh, if, if a person is involved in a church discipline situation and they've just kind of gone to another church and say, well, go peddle your papers, I'm going to go and uh, just kind of do my thing. Uh, you know, the Bible has some pretty strict warnings about those who take communion and don't rightly discern the body and blood of Christ. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is God is going to deal with people that do such things. And, and so uh, I would command, in a sense, uh, this uh, Roman Catholic bishop from saying to uh, for saying to someone like Nancy Pelosi, who supports uh, abortion all the way up to the nine month, facilitates that, uses her position of power to make that happen and say, no, you can't do that and still be in good conscience taking communion along this line. Uh, we would disagree, obviously, on uh, the specifics of what happens in communion and so forth. But uh, we would thoroughly agree that an individual who's taking communion is an open, blatant sin uh, and uh, is not willing to repent of it uh, is not doing themselves any favors spiritually. And we are not doing a person like that any favors just by looking the other way and saying, well, yeah, go ahead and knock yourself out. And also as another caveat, we know there are people who are listening to this broadcast who have been unjustly disciplined as a result of accusations either improperly handled or only heard one side of the story and have been defrauded by those in church leadership. And the good news is the foundation behind what makes church discipline serious isn't the fact that you're just kicked out of the church, but that before God, you stand with this being upheld right. before. Absolutely. Him. And the yeah. good news is, 
He's the one that stamps it as official, not the church. So if you're in a situation where you have unjustly experienced church discipline and you feel like, oh, great, now I'm handed over to Satan over something I didn't do, or this person's destroying my life and it's just continuing because their manipulations continued onto the church, don't worry. God is the one who knows what is ultimately going on, and he'll deal with the church as well. Yeah. But the point being made is that if we recognize the purpose and the goal of church discipline is restoration, then the means by which that is achieved will hopefully get shorter and shorter as we grow. Yeah, and uh, I think that really bears repeating. The, the church has power not because of a hierarchy, not because of a particular structure or because you passed certain classes or certain individuals gave you the, the spiritual thumbs up. The power of the church is the fact that Jesus is right there in the midst. It's yep. his church. You read the book of Revelation chapters uh, 1 through 3, and you see that Jesus describes himself as the one who walks among the lampstands, the lampstands being a picture of the church in its totality. Explained he, in the he, chapter. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the seven stars either being the angels or the messengers, the teaching pastors of these church. He holds these people in their hands. And as you read through Revelation chapters 2 through 3, these churches that are uh, emblematic uh, of, of the general condition of the church down through time, you see, Jesus has this uh, repeated phrase that he says, I know your works. You know, you can fool all the people all the time, but you can't fool God. And so if you've been in a place where you, maybe you've been abused in a church situation, a church discipline situation, understand God is the ultimate judge. You don't have to worry about that. But if you're one of those people that, uh, you know, lives one way outside the church and then straightens your halo and comes into church, uh, be afraid. Be very afraid because God isn't mocked and he is going to deal with you one way or the other. Church discipline is a way how to bring these issues to the forefront, the surface. And, uh, you know, there's one other passage about church discipline that I think uh, we really have to keep in mind. If uh, maybe you are a part of church leadership and you are called to be a part of this particular process in the book of Galatians, chapter six, we are told in verse one, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one, let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another for each shall bear his own load. To, to summarize all of that that's involved there, uh, if you're going to be a part of correcting somebody, correct them the way you'd want to be corrected if the shoe was on the other foot. Walk in the law of love and you won't go too far wrong. Now, is there something else you want to talk about before we get to the questions? Because there are some fun ones that will dovetail nicely. From well, us. let's just go to the questions. Okay. Uh, if you notice me grinning, we haven't heard from this in a while, and I love the topic. Uh, Justin wants to know, is it okay for pastors to say, touch not God's anointed when they do something wrong or teach something wrong? And then uh, he notes, is it right for pastors to be handed over Satan at times? Justin, absolutely. Uh, that passage is definitely one that's popular among false teachers and should be a crimson red flag if you ever encounter a sound or in this case, unsound Bible teacher that would even think of using this in that context. First of all, when it, the Bible says, touch not God's anointed, it was in the context of what? A king of Israel in a very vulnerable position 
being essentially given the opportunity to be assassinated by King David when he was unjustly trying to pursue his life. Now, if the false teacher wants to put himself in the position of Saul, I don't think that that's a commendation on their part, but let's take it a step further. Yeah, there's two places where this scripture shows up. Uh, One is found in Psalm 105, and the context of this particular psalm, I think, is is important. Uh, It is a description of God's wonderful works on behalf of Israel. Uh, in fact, uh, it's reiterated uh, in uh, First Chronicles chapter 16. It is a psalm of David. And uh, it talks about seeking the Lord and his strength, seek his face forevermore, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders in the judgment of his mouth. As it says, O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. And so, so who are the con- chosen? The, the context is God dealing with Israel. Uh, it says when they were but a few in number, a very few and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he suffered no man to do them, that is the people of Israel, harm. Uh, and he reproved kings for their sake, saying, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. So touch not kings, right? Well, no, it says uh, the people of Israel. That's the context there. Now, someone will say, um, well, you know, uh, I'm, you know, the anointed teacher over this. And so uh, you should not criticize me. Well, you know, that ever applied. Well, it's not just that this passage is kind of yanked out of context. But when someone comes along and says, well, you know, it does say, touch not my anointed, do my prophets no harm. You know, who am I to offer some kind of word of uh, criticism to someone who's in leadership, even if it seems like they're out to lunch? Well, if you're ever going to be involved in spiritual leadership, before you do, I highly recommend reading James chapter 3. Because in James chapter 3, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. So if someone with a big-time ministry says, Oh, touch not my anointed, and uh, do my servants no harm. Anyone who is uh, calling into question you know, say what we do with our money or uh, an extravagant lifestyle that's being uh, led by some leader of an organization or or some uh, behind the scenes uh, abuse of individuals. If you have to drop that card, you've kind of lost the battle uh, in and of itself. You know, one of the uh, key qualities that needs to be a part of anyone who's going to be an overseer, a leader in the church, in First Timothy chapter 3, the first of these qualities is this. If anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a good work, let an overseer be beyond reproach. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that anyone who wants to be an overseer has to have some spotless, perfect moral life. Uh, if that were true, the only person who could be an overseer would be Jesus himself. Uh, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does being beyond reproach mean? Well, uh, the idea of being beyond reproach in the original language carries the idea of not being laid a hold of. It doesn't mean that a person can't make an accusation uh, against an individual. It doesn't mean that an individual can't have a stumble within their life. But the key thing is, how do they deal with the accusations? How do they deal with stumbling within their lives? Uh, You know, I think of uh, one of the 
uh, greatest eras that we saw where that particular passage got thrown around a lot. Uh, do not touch my anointed, do my servants no harm. It was the TV evangelism scandals uh, of the uh, 1980s. And uh, in, in essence, what happened there, if you don't remember it, uh, it just seemed like one after another, these uh, individuals that started out with these little tiny ministries who suddenly made good, got up to no good when they had the goods, and then it all came out. And uh, when this sort of thing came out, uh, you know, individuals would try to use this scripture as saying, oh, you can't criticize uh, this particular person uh, because uh, they, they've got. But, but what does it mean that they, were, they weren't beyond reproach? Well, what really caused them reproach, especially in the public eye, because these things were making great uh, ratings on 60 Minutes and Nightline and all these different uh, TV programs of that time. What really uh, galled people wasn't the fact that these individuals had made mistakes, but the fact that they weren't willing to be accountable for those mistakes. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't that these people had to be perfect in order to be in the positions that they were in, but for them to say, how dare you criticize me? They suddenly came across more like the great and powerful Oz saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, and I have found that people will be endlessly forgiving of individuals who are honest about their stumbles and their falls. That's why the scripture says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The servant, uh, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. If we blow it and we are honest about it, then, you know, people will understand that. But if there's the big cover up that goes on, if there's uh, the pointing fingers at other people and saying, well, you're the problem or, you know, these uh, critics are these ones that God is going to curse and so on. Uh, you know, that's not what that scripture has to to say. So anything you'd, you'd add to that? No, I'm over for two. A uh, question from Bob who wants to know if we could discuss the Catholic Church's teaching on purgatory. OK, would you like to take that one? I uh, reiterate my point. Uh, you want me to read Second Th- uh, Corinthians chapter three, and then you can clarify. Sure, that'd be that'd be awesome. All right, uh, this is the passage they would use as a proof text. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be sl- saved. Yet so as through fire. Apart from the extra-biblical books they would use to affirm this doctrine and other presumptions like the concept of venial as opposed to mortal sins, why is it that this isn't suddenly an insight into a limbo spiritual state where you are purged of said venial sins under the assumption you've been a good Roman Catholic boy? Well, the, the, the problem with this, this idea of purgatory, this place where you know an individual's sins are purged, if you will, is, uh, I mean, you could say it so bleakly hit it out in that particular passage, but you've got to come with a huge set of assumptions already guiding your understanding uh, before you would even uh, ever come to uh, the idea that a uh, purgatory uh, is being taught in Scripture. What does the Bible say about purgatory? Well, uh, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, purgatory is a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from their venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due their transgressions. So to sum up a lot of Catholic theology, purgatory is a place where a Christian soul goes after death to be cleansed of sins that had not been fully satisfied during this life. Now, what is the the problem with this? 
Well, the primary passage Catholics point to is the one that you quoted uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, uh, saying that an individual's uh, works are going to be burned, they will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. Well, the problem with that is it's not a description of an individual being judged. It's a picture of what? An individual's works being judged. You know, Paul talks about there's only one foundation that can be laid, uh, which is laid, and that is is uh, faith in Christ Jesus. But whatever one builds on that foundation, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, are going to be revealed when they pass through God's fiery presence. It is strictly speaking about rewards here, not one's fitness to stand in the presence of of God. It is not a believer who passes through the fire. It is a believer's works that passes through the fire. And and uh, so this idea that somehow we've got to have sins that were unconfessed or venial sins as opposed to mortal sins. And the Bible doesn't really make much of a distinction uh, between those. Those are all extra biblical categories there. Uh, really ignores the clear teaching of Scripture. What's the clear teaching of Scripture? Well, uh, again, Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that uh, when we are still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For perhaps for someone, a good man, someone would die, and for a righteous man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The last words that Jesus spoke uh, when he was on the cross uh, was one Greek word, tetelestai, which means it is finished. What was finished? It was our uh, forgiveness. What the, he was on the cross to do. Yeah. And uh, nowhere uh, in the New Testament does it talk about uh, a continual working out or, or a, a need for further forgiveness that we have to accomplish. Uh, as the old uh, song goes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. First uh, John chapter 2 says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, you know, again, purgatory uh, is a misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, Catholics view the Mass or the Eucharist as a representation of Jesus' sacrifice because they fail to understand that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Uh, it was a once for all. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27 says, He has no need, like those priests, speaking of Jesus, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for his own people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So, uh, again, we don't contribute anything to our forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, It is by grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, like taking communion or continued uh, membership in a church, uh, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, you know, the idea of purgatory being a place of cleansing and preparation for heaven, this place where, by the way, unless you are declared a saint, according to the Roman Catholic Church, all 
who die, even if you've died in good standing with the Roman Catholic Church, are in purgatory. Uh, it really flies in the face of other clear teachings of Scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't say to be absent from the body means to go to purgatory, but after a few hundred thousand million years uh, and people you know, offering sacrifices on your behalf by making contributions uh, to the church, uh, meritorious works, uh, and so on, uh, that will somehow get you out of this purgatory place. Uh, the scripture simply does not teach that at all. Uh, so to be present with the body is to be at home with the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses six through eight says that uh, it doesn't say to be absent from the body. You'll be in purgatory with cleansing fire. No, uh, because of the perfection, the completion, the sufficiency of Jesus sacrifice once and for all, we are immediately in the Lord's presence after death, completely cleansed, free from sins, glorified, perfected, and ultimately sanctified. Uh, Romans chapter eight. I just, would add this to this process uh, says this uh, again we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew these he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son he might be the firstborn among many brethren and those whom he predestined these he also called and those whom he called these he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified now notice that's past tense that's over and done in the presence ephesians chapter 2 says we are already seated in heavenly places in christ jesus so this idea of uh, purgatory or place where our sins have to be burned off that somehow that jesus didn't pay at all and we've got to make up for it uh, is simply something the scripture doesn't teach that be borderline blasphemous. Uh, Monica wants to know, uh, in Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, probably mentioned in verses 1 through 2 as to what the day was, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Uh, she wants clarification on the meaning of this. They believe the falling away is a rebellion, apostasy, uh, not a rapture or a part so well you're right as far as the original language but notes that first and second thessalonians had two end times uh cued perspectives as far as first thessalonians that was more the rapture because it uses the word second thessalonians is more cued towards the last days and keeping the second coming of christ and antichrist in proper perspective yeah and how to live in light of both but and we're talking about the concern people have. Obviously, it's a secondary issue. We'll start, of course, most importantly, in verse 1. But you've written extensively on this. What is the uh, most biblically consistent, based on more information, not less, handling of the apostasy? Obviously, Paul goes on in the next six verses to clarify who the son of perdition is, but what is the falling away? Yeah, yeah. Let no one deceive by any means. The day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. I've heard very good biblical scholars and prophecy teachers point to this and say, you know, this falling away uh, is the word apostasis. It literally means to stand away from something if you just look at it in its construction in the original language. And some will say that this is a picture of the rapture having to take place prior to the Antichrist being manifested. Well, I think, I think that point is further made 
in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that the one who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. Uh, in other words, the church's presence in this world, Jesus defining the point of the church in Matthew chapter 5, you're the salt of the, the earth, you're the light of the world. Salt was an important preservative. It kept things from rotting out. Light is something that keeps darkness at bay. As long as we are here, the Antichrist as such cannot reveal himself that is the ultimate antichrist there's lots of little antichrist running around but not the guy who's the beast from the sea of revelation chapter 13 so you know there are some who will say well this is a picture of that falling away it's a standing away that is the rapture i don't take that point of view because when we take a look at the word apostasis we get our term apostasy from it and with good reason in the vast majority of cases in the original language, uh, an apostasis was a, a word that was used to describe a mutiny in a sense, a military rebellion that would take place uh, among troops. And so I think in that light, and since that is the, the picture uh, that is commonly meaning a military uh, rebellion and in the scriptures uh, the word is used against as a rebellion against God those who are const, uh, uh, consciously rebellious against him same word is used when we hear about apostates or an apostasy it means literally rebelling against God's standard and his word I think it's better just to take that in the immediate sense I think you'd have to kind of read into seeing the rapture here I think there's other passages that obviously teach a pre-tribulation rapture like first Thessalonians chapter four, or Matthew chapter 24. And we can explore some of those if you'd like to go into them. But as far as this is concerned, what it, it basically ties into is something we see interestingly in uh, the pattern of the seven churches in the book of revelation. There are those who believe that not only do we see in the seven churches, the general condition of the church down through time uh, that, but that each of these churches in a sense uh, what represents, in a sense, a spirit of the age, uh, the general uh, health of the church, in particular eras down through church history. Well, if that is the case, uh, when we take a look at the last of the seven churches, it's the church at Laodicea. It's the church that is so lukewarm, Jesus says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Basically, it's the self-sufficient church. It's the church where Jesus is outside standing at the door and knocking. Uh, needing entrance to this kind of a church. So if the dominant uh, age of the church, part of the time of the rapture, uh, indicates that we're not going to go out with a bang, but with a whimper, I, I think that also is borne out here, that there is going to be a, a great apostasy that is going to happen, that uh, just has been the case down through time, God has always had, uh, his people, but his people have, generally speaking, in Israel's history, been the minority. Uh, the faithful ones were the minority. The majority were kind of like either undecideds or actively working against the purposes of God. Same thing, I think, is true here. And I think it's borne out by the one of the most outstanding parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, that uh, Jesus said that uh, a man... Uh, sowed good seed in his field, but an enemy came by night and sowed tares among them. Now, a tear uh, was a particular noxious weed called darnel that looks just like regular wheat until it's fully grown. It just doesn't produce any fruit at the end. You might say that that 
crop had been terrorized <laughs> by an enemy. But when Jesus interpreted this particular parable, he interpreted it in this way. He said that uh, the good seed, uh, the wheat, is the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one and get sown in among them. Well, in the, the parable, the uh, workers of uh, the, uh, the field say, do you want us to pull up the weeds? And he goes, no, don't pull them up because you might damage the good wheat while you're doing it. Let them both grow up together. And then at the harvest, we'll separate the wheat from the tares. So in the church, what Jesus is warning of down through time, there are those who are the real deal and the phonies and the pretenders. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, I, I went to church and I was so disappointed because I ran into people that just uh, talked a good talk, but they didn't really know the Lord at all. Well, Jesus gave you that heavenly heads up about all of that. Uh, the, the secret of life is make sure you're a part of the wheat and not a tear, not someone that is uh, someone that just looks like a believer, but really doesn't have any fruit about it. Uh, maybe the best fruit about it uh, that we need to be about is uh, the presence of God's love and his truth abiding in our lives. If we abide in a living relationship with God, we can know we're bearing good fruit, uh, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of peace, the fruit of the spirit that we find in uh, the book of Galatians chapter 5. We start to see these things happening in our lives. We're going to know we're all right. But if all we've got is some kind of intellectual theory about Jesus, we go to church because we're maybe trying to appease someone in our family who thinks we ought to be at church. Uh, if uh, we don't really seem to have any kind of personal connection with Jesus at all, well, you know, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says, Test yourselves lest you fail to recognize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you, lest you fail the test. How can you know that Jesus is in you? Well, by faith, invite him to come into your life. Uh, ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to make you a brand new person. That's what we mean by being born again. And I would just say, as a friendly word of exhortation to you, if you can't point to a specific time where you made that decision to invite Jesus into your life, make that decision the bible says but to as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 that church at laodicea we mentioned jesus said behold i stand at the door and knock if any man hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and dine with him and he with me now notice uh some people say well that's just jesus being on the outside of the church but notice jesus personalizes it if any man hears my voice and opens the door have you heard God's voice? Have you heard his word? Do you want to respond to God's offer to come in and forgive your sins and make you a brand new person and be part of God's forever family? Just call on him in a moment of prayer. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just pray in the privacy of your heart. Lord, I know I need you in my life. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead so that I could have life. Please come into my heart. Make me a brand new person. I receive you this day as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you pray that prayer in the sincerity of your heart, you're in. You're part of God's forever family. Most importantly, Jesus is in you. That's the most important thing. And if you'd like uh, to get some information about how to get up going and growing in your walk with God, hey, communicate to us through one of our internet platforms. Uh, we'll be happy uh, to get you a copy of our New Believer Survival Packet. If you're here in Tucson, come by the church. 
uh, here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We'll be happy to get one of those in your hands as well. And if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. Be a great uh, thing to tell somebody that you made that particular decision. And uh, the Bible says if you want to make a public declaration of this new life that you received in Christ, hey, consider uh, getting water baptized. We offer that on a regular basis here at Calvary Christian Fellowship as well. All right. Question from Yari who wants to know by whose authority did John the Baptist do these things? Why didn't Jesus answer the Pharisees question? Uh, Well, let's go to the passage. This is Mark chapter 11, verse 27. A note context. This is just after Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the final time. This is a week out from his uh, crucifixion. So is time uh, what you would call disposable income to Jesus at this point? Yeah. No. Okay. No, not so, at all. Verse 27, he came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, obviously, they're referencing something like we're supposed to know what we're talking about. The good news is verse or chapter 11 and verse 27 is 26 verses before it. What happened in the chapter so far? Well, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt, uh, fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah. He had gone into the temple for the second time, by the way, and cleansed it from all the money changers. Also fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, taking advantage of people who wanted to genuinely worship God, uh, want to get God mad, stand between him and his kids. Yeah. And, of course, he had miraculously performed a sign to his disciples. A fig tree had withered immediately after it was cursed, Uh, not obviously instantaneously. They came out, they came back and they saw that within the span of however long it took for Jesus to Less clean house. Less than 24 hours. Yeah. yeah, that's not normal, even with bleach. So whatever yeah. happened was weird. Then the Pharisees come up to him, and oddly enough, they want to know, well, who died and gave you the right to rise again? Well, <laughs> he says in verse 29, I also ask you one question. When you an- Then you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, that's it's John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reason among themselves, saying, For if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. So Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now obviously the answer Jesus would have given, if it was a sincere question, is in John chapter 1 and verse 6. There is a man sent from God whose name was John. Not subtle. But if on the other hand we were to ask why didn't he answer their question, we clarified he is at a very vital point in his earthly ministry. So obviously they weren't trying to trap him. He trapped them. But why didn't he answer the question? Well, because John had already answered it. Uh, In uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 19, we are told, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Uh, He is quoting Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. So John's authority did not come from the fact that he was a dynamic speaker. Uh, Apparently, he could 
hold an audience's attention, but he wasn't what you would call seeker sensitive. I mean, he'd lay things on pretty heavy. The spirit of the Lord was definitely upon him and people recognized that. But the most important reason for John's ministry to be taken seriously, John said, is because the word of God prophesied my ministry. That is the authority that he had. And you could examine John's teaching to find out if it lined up with the rest of the scriptures and uh, even his uh, most uh, bitter enemies could find no fault in him. You know, in other words, they couldn't find anything to discredit his ministry or say, oh, you know, yeah, you see what that guy eats? You know, he's got to be crazy. He used to eat locusts and wild honey. So, you know, protein diet there. But uh, but they Skip couldn't the find legs. but they couldn't find anything that departed from the scriptures about him. So, you know, that's really where he got his authority. And by extension, you know, some people will come up to me and say, well, you know, who gave you the right to be a pastor? Well, at that moment, I could say, well, you know what? Uh, I've got a three-year master's degree in biblical languages and theology from Talbot Theological Seminary. Uh, I have a plaque in my office uh, with an ordination certificate signed by Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Costa Mesa, where he and his elder board examined me for the ministry and considered me fit for these sort of things. Therefore, I am qualified to minister to you. Uh, Here's the problem with that. You can jump through all those hoops and still not even know the Lord. What is the only thing that gives us the authority to be able to share God's word on a a program like that? It's the spirit of God and the fact that we are speaking in harmony with the clear teaching of God's word. Which the spirit will do. Yes. So that is is the the, the bottom line in all of that. And if someone says, well, you know, I've, I've had all these years of experience or all these other people think I'm wonderful or I've written all of these books... None, none of that is uh, a valid qualification for ministry. The only thing that qualifies us is if we speak according to God's word and the power of God's spirit. That's the only reason that you should listen to anything we say on this program. All right. Uh, two questions in 25 seconds. Let's see if we can do it. Uh, Jay wanted clarification on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in reg- or 2 Corinthians 3, rather, uh, regarding the works that get judged uh, that Paul was talking about. Is that like preaching the gospel? That would be anything done in or apart from Christ. Right, right. Anything that we do in the name of God has to be done in the power of God. If it's not God who does it, then it's worthless. All right, and then uh, yesterday, or last week, rather, question about any further books recommended for study. Peter and I recommended Habakkuk, Hosea, and Micah. Any others? Uh, as far as the minor prophets are concerned, yeah, uh, Jonah, I think, is a great book as well. Uh, very applicable to the times we live in and very motivating uh, to get us out sharing our faith. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.